So we didn't mean to be this late coming back, though. No, right? that's true. Yeah, we, it was supposed to be just one week off, so an every other week thing. Right. And, and then I got sick. And then you got sick. And, and it's too sick to do the show. Well, very lots of coughing. Yeah, that would have been a And pain. that you just can't do that. No. Um, no. And so unlike the last time I got this weird version of this, uh, it's not weird. I mean, people get sort of cold slash flu things all the time. Uh, the last time I got it, I actually completely lost my voice. That did not happen this time. What mm-hmm. happened was... That would have made it difficult to record. As well, yes. But w- what it was just lots and lots of coughing. Hmm. And that's no way to do a podcast. Can we go into further detail about your ailments? Uh, no. <laughs> no. Uh, I, I, I wonder though. So, and I have a little stockpile over here of lozenges in case, uh, excellent. in case I start to veer back toward. Got a hot cup of oral argument brand coffee. That's when the coffee's delicious. Thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. That's, that's with the new grinder that I got for my birthday. Oh yeah. Congrats. Um, and we, we actually meant to record even a little sooner. So it, we had scheduled, we had a guest for the day we were supposed to record when Indeed. you were sick. And, 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 and that guest was speaking with her next week. That guest was gracious enough to reschedule, but then some stuff came up in, in her life. And so, right. so that's going to happen later, yes. right? Um, immediately, this is not put off forever, just, you know, no. rescheduled for just a little bit. So, right. All right. Do people want to hear more very, about our, like, it's a, it's a choppy time of year. It's, it's yeah. because there are exams and there are, student papers that are finishing up and there are, it's just a very, um, it's pretty hectic in an academic context, For law prof, which yeah. is where we work. Yeah. Uh, so it's, you know, this is a time of at the end of the semester where schedules get a little bit, suddenly get a little bit more, uh, catch as catch can and yeah. crazy. I exactly the same for me. Cause you think it's at the end of the semester classes are done. You think, okay, I can, you know, I've got this basically free time or at least flexible time right? Where things can kind of slot in and other stuff can move. you got a lot to do, but you think it's flexible. But then pretty soon before you know it, it's filled up with meetings of various kinds. Right. Because everybody's thinking that way. Exactly. And the, 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 that, you know, it's more flexible actually makes it worse. Right. Because every, as you say, everyone's sort of piling in instantly. And um, so between faculty meetings and other meetings and student meetings and writing an exam, right. which we have to do and all that. So. I had wall-to-wall meetings from 10 a.m. yesterday to 10 p.m. at night. Ugh. basically uh which was fine i mean all of them were enjoyable things that i think are hey, good how did but... that review session go oh it went fine this is that you did that as a distance learning mechanism well right? I... do use... you like that phrase distance learning online whatever use whatever phrase you want please <laughs> let's not get into a linguistic that's but this is why people tune in to hear I... us argue over the <laughs> i cannot deal with semantic hygiene this morning i just can't <laughs> so call it a webinar call it what you want okay um did you have a review session did it go well I, I think it went fine. Yeah, I think it went fine. And the fine. tech supported you. Yeah. It didn't crash. Yeah. And I was able to post the audio of the review session. I could have posted the video, but the students appeared in the video. And I was like, eh, the audio is just as good here. Yeah. So I posted the audio of the review session pretty much right after it happened. Great. And so the students who weren't there, you know. Get the benefit of get it. Get the benefit of it. Exactly. Sounds great. You know, what else I'm using in classes? And I don't think that, I don't know if the students like this as much as the distance learning stuff, for example, in the, in the online class that I'm doing. Mm. But I'm using Slack for both classes, ah. which we also use for and, – and it's interesting because I think that it's um, – first of all, I think it's an amazing product. We're not getting paid for this, right? We are not. Maybe, maybe retroactively. <laughs> well, we, should, we should look into this. We no. get neither kickbacks nor kick no. slacks. We get, we get nothing. But it, it's, it's this product which is building unbelievable momentum uh, in terms of its features and the things that it's replacing. You know, now it does calls. You can set reminders. It has an unbelievable number of integrations. 
I really like it, especially as a teacher, because I'm able to keep all of my student conversations in kind of one stream mm. instead of having interspersed in my email and kind of losing track or yeah. having to use folders. It's just, it's so much better. But it's like the one product that I can remember that I've been, you know, super uh, optimistic about, which also requires some training. Because usually my inclination is tr- towards these products that, you know, these implementations where you just kind of pick it up and use it and you don't have to think about it. Right. Like those are usually the well-designed ones. Right. Slack is extremely well-designed and yet to get the most out of it requires a little bit of training. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of, for me, that's kind of new territory. And I know I'm not getting anything like the most out of it. Cause so I know, I know that your sense of the training need is, 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 Definitely true. But that's, we just use that for between the two of us. It's not a great tool. In other words, it works for the two of us because we're able to post things for right, oral argument. Right, but you're really getting the benefit of it, my sense is where you're really getting the benefit of it is when it's a large, um, a, a significantly larger group of people. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because um, the sort of locating everything in that, in that space that's a dedicated space for that activity, um, that's um, an amazing time The ability saver. of people in a group basically to form private groups, public groups, to have different chat channels, to be able to share things. To It's the kind of thing that where the more you use it, the more you realize its possibilities. I'm, I'm curious to hear if anybody out in law firm world who's l- listens to the show or any oh, students like yeah. have this. If I were a student, I would immediately form a Slack and start, start inviting fellow students in and forming mm-hmm. study groups on the fly. Uh, you know, you can, it integrates with Google Hangouts. So you can just type like slash Hangout in your channel and boom, you're all kind of talking. Mm. Um, it's, it's really cool, but I'm curious if, if anybody out there uses it and, and to what degree it's one of those products where, you know, tech enthusiasts are probably on the leading edge. And it's one of those where, because it requires a little bit of training, it's like even harder to get the non-enthusiast to, cause you know, why should I change what I'm doing if it's working? Right. But the tech enthusiast sees all the ways that what you're doing right now is broken and not working, <laughs> but like you don't <laughs> see them cause it's like all opportunity cost instead right. of like real cost. You know yeah. what I mean? How do we get started talking about, oh, we were talking about the online classes and how I've, those are kind of two changes that I've made. And I I really like it. Although I bet, I bet the students don't like Slack as much uh, this term because I didn't, you know, it was an experiment for me and I didn't start by showing them the ways you could use it or suggesting particular ways of using it or getting them, you know, I, I think it requires that little bit of training. Now for the online classes, for the synchronous stuff have we already talked about this because i know we we shipped that one episode which was my but it was an atypical podcast atypical episode of that because it was you and me talking like we do on the show Mm, whereas most of them were 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 me talking in a slightly more organized way uh with you know outlining the particular thing where yours your and my discussion was a a discussion a more freeform discussion yeah Yeah, the, the malt recordings that i heard of yours for this semester yeah were yeah they were more um uh, they were more systematic, they right. were more produced, they had some music, they had, you know... Some sound a... effects, some things to make make up for the lack of Joe. <laughs> I needed something to make up for the lack of Joe, so I, <laughs> so I added some ridiculous sound effects. But so that was the asynchronous part, it's just like what we do on the show, except I it's a it, different kind of thing. But the students could download it in a podcast app. Now for the synchronous part, the stuff where we appear and talk together at the same time, we use Zoom, mm-hmm. which is a great like no configuration product. That, and that's the thing you used for your review session last night. Exactly. Although not for modern American legal theory. It was for, for property. Class, so yeah. yeah. And, and you can join one of those with a, with a, an iPhone or Android or an iPad or from a computer with a, you know, with a webcam in it. And you can even call in from like a rotary phone if you had to. 
Really? Yeah, it's a it's it's a really cool like zero configuration product. And this is something the university is supporting that you, the law that school is. Yeah, the law school has a site license or something. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, need yeah. a site license. Yeah, you, okay. you can do you can do some stuff for free, which I started evaluating before I, you know, but it's called beforehand. Zoom. It's called Zoom. It's equivalent to like, um, I don't know, like these go to meeting products oh, and yes. stuff. There, there's not Who really makes that Citrix or something. I, don't, I think so. I think either they acquired them. Go to meeting. Yeah, is, uh, I know. I've heard that name of, yeah. a, of a product. Now, out in law firm, law firm world, I'm sure that a lot, some of our listeners out there, you know, whether you're in a public office or private office, I know that people use these things to meet remotely. Yeah. And I'm curious, like, what they use. Um, but do, people also probably use Skype to meet remotely or FaceTime. Yeah, right? depending I mean, on how many people are yeah. going to be. I, I would think Skype would be very popular and Hangouts might be popular for, like, a larger group more informally. But but I'm right. not sure. I mean... It's the getting multiple people to the to the visual meeting that it seems to be to be the hard part yeah but for 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 us like zoom allows you to like you know have up to like 90 people in there wow that's for a people lot. To, for people to raise their hands and send you private messages so it, it has some facilities in there that are good for teaching anyway uh two big things yesterday two big two things? big things and, and other than meetings from 10 to 10 we do have a topic for today Nominally, but this is going to be one of those shows where we're going to do. It's lo- we're do it's looser today. Where we're going to lo- frustrate. We're, lo- we're loose. I'll put the times. I'll put the timings in the show notes so people can skip if they want to, <laughs> right? Because I, I know we got that one bit of bad feedback on iTunes from someone who was like frustrated like years ago. That was like ten yeah, years but, ago. But you know, it's like that one bad review makes you feel bad. And, and you know, um, by the way, if you if you like the show, rate us on iTunes. It'll help us get new listeners. Oh yeah. I don't know why it works that way, but you know, the more you rate us, the easier it is. For people to find us. And if you're not going to give us five stars, before you click, <laughs> you know, send us an email at oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com, oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com, and, t- and tell us why. Give us a chance to persuade you. Or give us a chance to change. That we're, f- we that can we're change. five star worthy. We can change, right, Joe? Eh, probably not. <laughs> Do you um, think people change? <laughs> this is a topic for today. Do people really change? No, that's not, that's not this show. That's another show you okay. and I'll do, like yeah. some kind of self-help show, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so, so two big things yesterday. One, there's a new Radiohead song. Yes, I and I listened to it like a million times yesterday, and it, I want it to be the theme music for the whole show. Wow! But anyway, that this is not I'll, a. Ra- I'll have to give it a listen. This is not a. This is not a Radiohead fan podcast. Although I, you know, I, I kind of wish it were, but it's not. <laughs> um, but like that's a very exciting moment in my life. Cool. So I just wanted to say that. I just wanted to share that with you, Joe. I, I think that's awesome. I do not believe I have ever heard a Radiohead song from start to finish. Oh boy! So this will be my this will be my uh, my introduction to that. I will listen to this song. What is it called? Burn the witch. Burn the witch. Yeah. Sounds like a. That's the sort of title you would get from Kate Bush, uh, a, 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 an artist I listened well, there, to quite there, a lot in college. There are other bands who have songs called Burn the Witch. Radiohead. Undoubtedly. Not you know they've had this song. Tommy York posted the lyrics for this song about 10 years ago. They've had this song for that long. Oh, wow. And, and this but is not the only one. They haven't released a recording of it. No. In fact, they've never played it before because it needs strings and stuff. And they, they've never played it. They played like a few chords live mm. to, to kind of tease people right. about it. Or just because someone shouted out Burn the Witch because they wanted to hear it. And they right. played a couple chords. He said, we can't do anymore. So <laughs> I look is, forward to hearing it. It is interesting, like a, a commentary about kind of work and production and, you know, the that they, they release these things, but they're one of those bands which will hold on to stuff for a long time until yeah, they feel it's lost. right. Nothing is lost. Yeah, well, it's, but it's also like, it's not ready. I mean, can you imagine holding on to a good song for nine years until you feel like you got it right? Sure. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough. It's tough. Uh, okay, one other thing that happened. Um, Trump clinched the, not, didn't clinch the nomination, but Cruz dropped out. That is true. Now, this is not a politics show either. This is not the oral argument gab fest. No. Right? But a time may come when we have to render a verdict on this. Verdict on what? On, on the whole Trump bid for the presidency. Hmm. Because this may transcend normal politics and go into the fate of the republic. <laughs> we may have to do a special show, I'm saying, on, on the transcendence of various candidacies yes, of normal politics. Yes, and we politics. might need to do it from a ship in the Atlantic. <laughs> as, we, as we are leaving, as we, as we have manned the oral argument escape pods. <laughs> exactly. We'll record over the din of the propellers at the back of the boat. Speeding yeah. us away. Oy. I think for, for pure smarm, uh, Ted Cruz is hard to beat. So, so seeing less of him in the news, um, if you're a person who, for whom smarm is a bit much to take, right. uh, I would think you'd be happy. Now, if you're a smarm lover, uh, I think you're going to be a little sad. Smarm lover. Now talk about, a, is that a title of any songs you listen to? In <laughs> no, no. Uh, so yeah, Ted, uh, Senator, uh, Senator Cruz, uh, we, we hardly knew ye. Couple things from Twitter. I'll update people on. Oh, cool. So, you know, um, Carl Malamud, who um, came up is uh, with Chris uh, Sprigman, an author of what had been called Baby Blue. We did a whole show about this. Yes. It's no longer called Baby Blue, is it, Joe? It's something indigo. Right? Yeah. Yeah. The, um, it's not baby indigo, is it? I don't think so. Oh, boy. Should we'll have link had, to it. Yeah, we'll link to it. I, I, I should have had this uh, in front of me. But instead, but, uh, I have tweets from so Carl Malamud. So Carl Malamud of publicresource.org and uh, other projects about making the law more publicly available to people. A yeah. real soldier for good. Like a really... He's been a, a topic on our podcast before. Amazing guy. And he, after hearing Chris on, on our podcast, really liked that episode, Baby Blue. Obviously, he's involved with it, but he says he's going to be making a transcript cool. of that show available to us. Now, that, this worries me just a tad. You don't think we'll come across as, as well in the cold transcript? <laughs> well, to be honest, I don't remember what I said. Um, that's so that's we'll, why we'll people have, to... have transcripts, although we could just listen to it again and we would remember what He we said, said it's going to be deposition-style transcript. Which by which he simply means a transcript right, that it's attributed to individual speakers. Yeah, yeah. I, do you think it should be like old Supreme Court style, where the guest is named, but then if it's you or it's me, it right. just says voice one, <laughs> voice or, two, or just oral argument colon right? As ah, if there's no, so like we're just an institutional speaker. We're an undifferentiated, <laughs> right? Uh, booming authoritarian yeah. voice. I like it. And it would take some forensics to figure out who was Oral saying what. Although the forensics argument. would not be hard. Hmm? Get the forensics to figure out who's saying what would not be hard. Probably It's not. like, oh, yeah, that's, that sounds vaguely ridiculous and, and veering off in whatever way. Yeah, that's and Christian. And then the next person <laughs> condemned it. So that was probably <laughs> that, Joe. That was probably Joe. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I don't have a link for that yet. I don't know if it's out, uh, if, if the transcript has happened, but we will definitely link it up when it does happen. Yeah. And Carl Malamud is an excellent person to give a follow to on, on Twitter. Like you said, doing lots of good things. And then uh, Chris Walker has produced for uh, Prof's blog a, ser a series of really, really interesting series. blog posts yeah. for kind of junior faculty, stuff of thinking about what 
what kinds of things you should be doing and just thinking about law school more generally. I mean, yeah. it was an interesting series of posts. One, a, a couple of those posts that were about podcasts, in particular about student law reviews doing podcasts. And they, and they which seem is a trend. to be popping up a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so students and law reviews, which connects to our law review episode, right? Yeah. Students and law reviews are thinking about other things they can do to contribute to discussion, to information flow, to, you know, try to make some good use of their resources. So doing podcasts is what some of them appear to do. Longtime listener Derek Muller has been highlighting these for us in our Twitter feed as as they've been popping right. up, encouraging them to make RSS feeds, because a lot of student law reviews will start just by posting audio without an RSS feed, which means you can't subscribe in a podcast app. Right. But And there's some issues, like a couple of them had some issues doing that, but they're going to get around to it. This seems to be a trend. And, you mean and, some technical issues. Yeah, and, and um, Chris's post was, uh, or posts were really about, you know, is this a good trend? Is it in fact a trend? Is it just trendy? And this is something that's not going to be kind of a long-term sustainable the, thing. The law review aspect of it or just legal podcasts in general? I think or? he was focused on law reviews. Mm, mm-hmm. Because the other, you know, This Week in Health Law, uh, a number of others, uh, podcasts other than ours, I think it identifies as like more niche podcasts by professors, which may continue to have a niche audience. Although ours is more of a generalist legal theory podcast. True. But nonetheless, I think he puts those in a different category. Right. But if there are suddenly, you know, count the number of law journals, if there are 150 law journal podcasts, you know, is that sustainable? Will it be interesting? Will it be valuable? Is this, you know, I think he's, he's musing about that. And we'll link yeah. up those posts. Did you have any thoughts you wanted to share now or you want to let that stew? No, let's do. Okay. Uh, that's, that's all I've got on the, on the Twitters, I think. Did we get any email feedback? Well, there's only two uh, email feedback uh, items. Uh, one from listener Justin, where he's reacting to two different things we've talked about, laptops in class. And he raises a great question about the fact that knowing what you want to do with laptops in class relates to knowing what you're trying to do as a teacher. Right. And how that relates to what students are trying to do in terms of learning. And he also raises the great point that when, you, when you're making this choice on behalf of students, um, that raises the question, do students know for themselves how they learn and how they might better learn or worse learn? Assuming they do know how they learn uh, and you choose handwriting notes as the only note method for your classroom, there might be some students who don't who are, are going to learn less well because uh, these studies, then there are increasing number of studies that show that uh, taking notes with your laptop, most students do not do better with that. They do worse um, that that, you know, some students in those studies do better. with laptops, yeah. And those students are not going to have their best tool available in a right. class where you have to take notes by hand. So. You know, there's a, it's just, I think this laptops in the classroom is, is tricky because there's, there's, uh, there are several unknowns at critical points of the analysis. Uh, and I think we'll get more information about that. And I think there will be more discussion of that. If your inclination is like mine to generally, whenever possible, to give agency to the students of, over their own learning at this age, at the age of law students. Correct. Uh, then you're going to be suspicious of laptop bans. Yep. Nonetheless, you, if you also, like I am, are interested in empirical studies and, and in gaining information and acting on the best available information, yep. you might be persuaded by some of these studies, as I have been. Yep. And I've tried a laptop ban. This year I didn't do it. I might, I might do it next year. The tricky problem, as you say, is, is one, you're interfering with a student's agency over their own learning. 
but in an area where making the clickety clack sound on your keyboard may interfere with others learning. So at least there's some justification right, for that. Right. Uh, but, but secondly, um, you, in an area where the students may not be the best judges of their own learning, like where maybe paternalism is called for because the studies also show students don't know what they're missing by taking notes with a laptop. Yep. And even if you tell people about these studies, they still think they're the one who will learn better. Like so, <laughs> yeah. So right, and but and, but and nonetheless, course, there may be some who do learn better. So correct. what do you do? Right. In, so some of the students do do? who think that are in fact right. That's and right. Some of them are wrong. Right. Uh, and and where to put where to put the the agency and the responsibility for the error? Um, right. And it, and it's in a context where we are responsible in very important ways, connecting to our topic for today, yeah. where we are very responsible in very important ways for what's happening in the classroom. Yeah. Uh, we, as the, as the people who bear that responsibility, can't simply say, well, you know, it's not my, you know, or it's, a stu- it's up to the student, student freedom. And I don't know, you know, right. you, can't, you can't be glib about it. You actually have to, uh, I think, engage in a deeper analysis of, of the, the right way to cope with all of these unknowns. Yeah, and we don't need to go into the reasons necessarily for why these studies identify, you know, putting neural connections together and thinking about things before you write them down. We've talked about this on past shows, right, about about taking notes longhand. And, you know, for someone like me, this is anathema because my handwriting is so bad. You know, laptops were the best thing ever for me. Um, But maybe they were not, right? (laughs) Um, uh, But I, I worry most about this student who might be inclined to follow the advice from the research, basically follow the research. But then here's that clickety-clack, I keep saying it, that clickety-clack noise of the keyboard, and it's thinking, I'm missing lots of stuff. And and over time, that becomes a, a constant den of right. I'm missing it, I'm missing it, I'm missing it. Because when you the act of writing things down and summarizing it is inevitably the act of missing a few things, right? Yeah. It's your best effort to summarize and synthesize the material. You're missing stuff, but it's not. you're not really missing stuff. I mean, you're missing stuff in the sense that in a sawmill, there are boards coming off the line and there's sawdust on the floor. Yeah. We can think of the sawdust as logs that got missed, but in fact, they're not. It's just sawdust. Uh, it's not, it's a byproduct. It's not important. The boards are important. Uh, and so the handwriting of notes is the making of the boards. But I leave open the fact that in summarizing, you may be missing key points. You may. And you may get them wrong. Whereas of if course. you took a transcript, you can, there's always the possibility you could go back and recover the correct points. But I think that leaves out the, the the next step, which is to compare your notes with your classmates, to go back over it again, to clarify where you think you may have gotten it wrong. Right. Like these are the ways that you learn. It's every time you put stuff into your brain and ask it to do stuff, that's where learning occurs. And the problem with transcripts is that's not happening. Right? Yeah, it's just transcription. It's not yeah. making choices. I to, to me the word the it's about it's the writing notes by hand and the fact that that forces you to make choices. You have yeah. to edit. Yeah, that editing process, that making choices, is that's to me what what that's what resonates with me as a learning experience, and why I think it's a better learning experience. Um. So anyway, uh, listener uh, Dustin raised that, and I thought it was cool and um, continues to be interesting. He also well, that, that, and just to close the loop on his point, right? I mean. I, I just want to say I'm totally sympathetic to his point about like letting people choose for themselves. That's really the emphasis here, right? But what do you do in an area where you know people will predictably make bad choices and perhaps choices they wouldn't make but for the choices people around them are making? Yeah, there's an interdependency yeah. uh, 
that has so that's, to be reckoned he, with. Yeah, but you know, I don't know that we've got a great solution for you, Justin, other than yeah. our trying to figure it out well, for I'm ourselves. Well, sure we don't, in fact. Have yeah, a great solution. Right, that's, that's true. Uh, this is still a moving target. And the second point about, you know, what happens with laws that are declared unconstitutional and um, uh, we were focusing, I think, on the question, what happens if a court reverses itself and subsequently holds that a law is not unconstitutional? Um, his observation is about instances where a law remains unconstitutional, but also remains on the books, and that mm-hmm. law enforcement can use it in various ways, and the law isn't, you know, all instantly conforming in a coherent way. There are the law in the bodies of police and other enforcement persons is a different reality, or that's a big part of reality. I think this came up, didn't it? I, I just don't remember the context where where a statute that had been declared unconstitutional and now there was a change in the in the grounds, but did the statute reappear zombie-like? Mm. And I just don't remember. Eh. This deserves another Vladiking. Mm. Wow. <laughs> That's the, those are the big guns. <laughs> those are the big guns. Or, gonna... or, or dwarfing. Uh, yeah. That was, the, remember our hammer blow episode, right? That's right. This is, this problem of, st- of zombie statutes, statutes which are dead for a long time, and then, you know, whether they should be allowed to come back, that could use a serious dwarfing, don't you think? Uh, it really could. <laughs> and he would, he would really, I'm sure he would have some fascinating things to say, actually. Yeah. So, and, and historical examples, maybe, yeah, at, we should at his that. fingertips that we, don't, that we don't have. I mean, I have thoughts about it. I don't think I'm going to launch into them now, but, yeah. but we can, that's another, another show. We need, we need to dwarf that bad boy. <laughs> Uh, all right, we've got another bit of feedback. Our other bit of email feedback is from Listener Bunny, who is all about the Oral Argument Con, if it ever happens, and has some cosplay ideas. Now, this is this is a convention and not a not a ruse, right? This is not this is Oral Argument Con, as in a Oral Argument Convention, correct? And like not, Comic-Con right, or Dragon Con, and not the fraud that we've been pulling on all of our listeners for these. No, that low we call that years. something else. <laughs> uh, and uh, so, but she's got this great cosplay idea. I guess she would. Well, is it cosplay? It's not really. Not, there's not a character that she is um that she's embodying but um well it is, i mean it's the recurring character of the uh car isn't it yeah and, and our our question about uh speed trap law and <laughs> the flashing of headlights for upcoming cars this her, her description is straight out of a mike myers movie i mean it is it is worthy of mike myers in visual humor um, does she want us to read it, you think? Or does uh, she want it to remain a surprise in case oral argument I think con ever happens? Remain, I think it should remain a surprise. But but uh, We should give a little hint, though. It involves it involves the uh, flashing of headlights. Yeah. Uh, consistent with our expertise in speed trap law. So I think that's quite fitting, that in an oral argument convention, mm-hmm. there are going to be speed trap law related events, prizes, and all kinds of things. <laughs> because, that, because we're the... We're, world's leading expert what <laughs> the world's foremost podcasting authorities on speed trap law correct that's what i've always said you have to modify it with various modifiers yeah, there are caveats and <laughs> conditions and uh, conditions apply what are some other like recurring themes on the show that would be costume worthy huh that's i think that's something we need to hear back from people about yeah i don't know i don't have ideas about that because i don't i'm i'm not a costume like i don't you're gonna go as joe yeah which would be like the the only time that just going as Joe would be totally appropriate <laughs> at, at a cosplay, in a cosplay sense, I think. That's right. right. That's right. And the, uh, you know, if you own stock in a pillow factory uh, in the vicinity, I think you're in luck because people <laughs> who want to dress up as me are going to need to buy lots of pillows. Terrible. Terrible. Um, and uh, I think it's going to be great. 
I, I'm just thinking of what other recurring themes we have that have come into, you know, have come into being and then have dropped out over the course of the show. Mm. Uh, we're getting old enough, though. We're, uh, can you even remember the first no, few shows? That was so many they decades happen? ago. Oh, that, yeah. Um, yeah. They who, were, can, who can even remember? It's in the lost in the midst those, of time. We shipped those on cassette, I think, didn't we? <laughs> Those early shows. No, they were on eight track. On eight track, they were on that eight track cartridge. That's true. And we would ship. Those eight were sh- some we good would, We would ship like uh, four shows at a time. Yeah. So you could just hit those buttons. Absolutely. And go between them. Okay. So enough nonsense. This is what we've done so far is basically shake loose all of the fair weather fans. So we're now down to our core audience. Show. Yeah, we've really worked it down to the nub. And I think it's time for our main topic. No, I guess. What? What? What is our main topic? I don't today? know. You tell me. Oh my gosh. You wrote something. I did. Yeah. And so what, what's the name of this piece? Um, that's a, that is a great question. <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't have the piece in front of me. I, I don't a, either. I have everything um, about it in, in my head except for the title. I think it's called something like the immorality of requesting expedited review. Okay. All right. So this something is. Something like that. You're writing about expedited review. Yeah. What even is this? How, how does this. What, what is this that you're. What are you writing against here, Joe? Most fields other than law uh, use a peer review model for publishing a journal. And in that peer review model, what happens is you as the author send your manuscript to a single journal. And that single journal asks peers in your field to read it and opine on whether it is of publishable quality. Anonymously. Anonymously. The reason why people submit to one journal at a time is this sort of implicit, but you can make it explicit, right? The the fact that submitting to the journal is going to trigger a series of events that impose burdens on people, mm-hmm. namely the people who are engaged in review of the right. piece to see if it's appropriate for the journal. Right. And those reviews typically will include not just sort of a thumbs up, thumbs down, but editorial suggestions and other suggestions, substantive suggestions for how to make the piece better if it were to be accepted. Uh, so there's sort of a revise and resubmit process that often goes on in a peer yeah, there, review there's context. Yeah, like there's a discrete judgment made about whether to recommend acceptance, revision, and resubmission or or Rejection. declining, right? Right. And then the editors of the journal take the suggestions from those reviewers and look at not just the discrete suggestion about what to do, but they also look, I guess, at the narrative and they make it their own judgment, right? Because ultimately right. They, make, they make the decision about whether to. And those – and the so the reviewers who are reading it are engaging with it in writing themselves. Again, the submission of the article to the journal sets off a chain of events where people do work. And that's part of why it's submitted only to one journal at a time because in a sort of – you know, what's the, what's the equilibrium that makes sense for the field? It's not to have 10 different journals, each asking three different people, so 30 different people in your field reading the piece. So that's how that has evolved, the norm of that that, that has evolved in those peer review fields. To, yeah, and just to interject here, there are notorious problems with peer review that people within those fields have, including that those reviewers who are anonymous may have their own agendas. Yep. Uh, and that can be a problem, or maybe they don't understand. So that people have all kinds of problems with that, right? And yeah, then, and then it's has, notoriously slow. It is very slow, uh, and um, and I think there is a, a genuine problem with with uh, the imposition, uh, even unconsciously, uh, of an orthodoxy uh, in, right. a, in a field. Now, law review publishing works quite differently. Uh, so the norm is not that there is peer review. The norm is that one submits one's manuscript articles to 
uh, law reviews uh, published by law schools, which are staffed by law students, not by other law professors. And uh, concomitantly, uh, the norm is that one submits to many journals at a time. And there are many journals. So every law school has at least one journal and usually, you know, one mainline journal, which will be, you know, law school, law journal, and then several specialty journals. Yep. You know, the Journal of Intellectual Property, the so-and-so Journal of Entertainment Law, that sort of thing. And so how many law schools are there? A couple hundred? Yeah, probably about 200. So how many journals are there? Uh, I would... uh, 400? Yeah, there might be that many. Um, Now, what's great about that is that that means that if if you think about faculty at these law schools uh, producing articles on a on a fairly regular basis, you can say to yourself, you know, pretty much everything is going to find a home somewhere. Right. Right. So the orthodoxy problem of other professors in your field preventing you from getting your ideas out in front of your field and exposed to people in your field, that is not a serious problem in law, in my perception. And it is a serious issue in a number of fields. Uh, the serious issue works the other way. So, so the, the fact of publication or the, the bar of publication is not a real bar. So long as you write something which is reasonably attractive to some second-year law students, you'll be able to publish that paper. Yes, and given the number of journals there are and the number of, and therefore the number of venues with those students on staff who can be reading it and right. thinking about it, right. and given that you can submit to many at a time, right. not just to one at a time, uh, the, the things will, most things will find a home uh, in a formal publication. Uh, and, uh, and things are... The use of the Social Science Research Network or SSRN.com as a place to publish um, informally the draft versions of these things is now widespread in law and, and lots even of the fields. final version. And even, and the, even final the final version, version right? It's um, equivalent to Archive. Is it called Archive X? I mean, it's the, the physics has one. Yeah. Um, other, other disciplines it's have open it. access yeah. archives. And SSRN for, hosts, I think, economics papers and other uh-huh. papers too. Yeah, so. many fields. Yeah. yeah. Well, the relevant difference in this context is given that it is not peer-reviewed, it is student-run and orchestrated, um, that people submit to multiple journals at a time. Perhaps a hundred or more. <laughs> right. right. This has actually gotten much more intense with the rise of electronic sort of connectivity. Uh, people have stepped in to provide service platforms that allow law professors submitting to many law reviews at once with uploading mm-hmm. a copy of the of an article, copy of a cover letter, um, interestingly, for reasons we can talk about, a copy of their CV. <laughs> Gross. Um, yeah. but, but it's... But it's requested routinely and uploaded well, routinely. The, the evidence is that it's used. It's it's a determinant for many law reviews. Yeah. Um, and so you know these these platforms, uh, Expresso is one, Scholastica is another. Um, not to buzz market, but um, so do you know when I was when I was the president of the Stanford Law Review, it was at that transition where I think Espresso was just starting to be a thing that that everyone was using, and Espresso's service at that point was you upload it to them and they will send all of the hard copies because places generally didn't accept electronic submissions. Right. And so when I came in, you know, uh, we would get, um, you know, there were stacks and stacks of papers in one of the law review rooms that had, you know, organized by, physically organized by like last name of the author or something like that. And 
if you wanted to submit your article and you didn't go through one of these middleman services, you would have physically to print it out according to the law review specification, which might differ from law review to law review. So you might have to print several different versions of your paper. You might. Put it into a big, you know, manila envelope. Pay postage. Pay postage. Is that, so you would go to the post office and you'd have all the, you know, a, a huge like thing of, uh, you know, one of those like mail carriers full of stacks yeah. of these things. Did you submit in that? Are you submitted in this way or did I, you not? Well, I rem, I rem, because you're, you're a little bit later. I mean, a little bit earlier than I am in terms of your entrance to the academy. But I bet by the time you were there, espresso was well ensconced, yeah, it, right? It, it was. I think it was well developed enough. And so, so it was principally electronic submission. I certainly remember as being a law review staffer uh, in the early '90s, getting those envelopes of paper. Yeah, um, so, you know, when I was so when I was on the law review, I went in there, I saw all that stuff, and I'm like, this is no way to live. Right. right. And so one of the, the one of my big things for my year was I coded a website that basically created like it was an it was basically an intranet that where people were able to share all these documents online mm. and all this stuff, and I created an external submission form. Okay. And that external submission form is like you go to the website, you type in your name, you hit submit, it returns you a number, an anonymous number, and internally it would associate that number with you and you could select blind review or unblind review and you could have it go through the various processes by hitting buttons on the on the inside. And then when, when you clicked, uh, you know, reject or accept, it would trigger an automatic email to the author where it would fill in the information. It's, if you want to, you could have it mm-hmm. not do that if you want to do something personalized. So the great irony, of course, is that over the years, as I've submitted a few things, I've gotten my my standard rejection from the Stanford Law Review, like the email that I drafted saying, you know, yeah. we're really sorry we get a lot of submissions like that. Like so it. it's totally karmic. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, the yeah. So there was a period where, as you say, um, different law reviews were developing ways to have things submitted electronically. So we made this transition from the great paper based mm-hmm. thing uh, to the electronic based processes that people use now and happened like um, it happened pretty quickly like there was this little ragged edge where like individual law reviews started to do things like that but then all of a sudden everybody moves on to one of the middleman services right right and 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 it's and it makes perfect sense right the the efficiencies that are there to be realized in the context of of a, a a a platform that takes in from all the authors who want to submit that way and distributes electronically to all the reviews that want to receive that way. And then maybe that middleware also offers the law reviews a, a, a piece of software that lets them manage those manuscripts yeah. and manage editor editor review and all kinds of other functions. Exactly the kind of thing I wrote, but it's like uniform now. Yeah, and, yeah. and so they can just give that in a turnkey way to the students who run a law review and yeah. say, this is, you can use this. One of the things it will do is it, is it, is the way that authors are going to submit things to you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, so so part of what's happening in this process is, of course, the the cost of submitting to uh, journals is falling. Yeah, because it's not postage, it's not making photocopies, it's not trundling to the post office, or or m- more accurately, in the context of law faculty sitting at a law school, the the administrative support staff doing that stuff. Yeah, right? I wonder what that was like. Um, I mean, it was, yeah. So that's all basically gone away. Um, well, those are costs. So the cost of submitting to lots of law reviews has fallen dramatically. The costs borne by the faculty member have fallen. Correct. So in terms of reception, the upfront cost of that has fallen too. 
uh, but the processing cost has risen dramatically because there are many more submissions to process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so depending on how you as a law review want to cope with the things you receive, your task has changed a lot. Depending on the law review, depending on the time of year, you're getting this tidal wave of submissions. We're talking several thousand. Could be. Two to, two to three thousand seems to be a number that was actually about the number that we got when I was on the law review. And I think now that number is much more common pretty much everywhere. But but maybe it's more. I'd, you know, maybe students could enlighten me. The right. last and, time I asked, it was a, around that range. And past a certain number, I don't think it makes that much of a difference whether you're talking mm-hmm. about um, 1,000 or 8,000. I don't know where the threshold is that crosses over from, you know, things we can handle on an individualized basis to things we have to handle as a mass throughput problem. Yeah. Um, I don't know where that number is, but it's, I'm guessing it's south of 1,000. Right. And, and so the fact that you're talking about one or two or five or eight is really irrelevant. Because you're just not going to get to them all. Right. Which little sub-micro stream of the fire hose are you going to try to get off to the side? Right. Because um, you can't drink the pipe of water right. coming right. out of the fire yeah. hose. Yeah. You just can't do it. Gosh, I feel like we're down the worst rat hole in the world. This is so boring. I'm falling asleep and oh I'm my, the one talking. Keep, well, keep going. Um, I think I think people are going to be – they're going to be replaying this several times just <laughs> to make sure they didn't miss anything. I think it's riveting. <laughs> this, this is the current context. Law professors submit to lots of law reviews. Lots of law reviews get lots of submissions. Mm-hmm. Last factual detail, I suppose, that's germane to people who might not be aware of it. These submissions are not evenly distributed through the calendar year. There are two bulges. Mm -hmm. Uh, One is a sort of mid to late February, mid to mid-March bulge. Just remember this is a family show. Yeah. Okay. And that's the big wave. Okay. And then there's another wave in August. Yeah. And these waves correspond roughly to, for historical reasons and others, correspond roughly to uh, the changing of the guard and the editorial board of law review staffs, which yeah. typically happens in the mid-February to mid-March range. Right. Uh, and then the August submission window, it's partly about, you know, summer research projects, what wrapping up. It's partly about the start of the new school year It's and some other things. So students coming back to school, it's their last chance to pick stuff that they can possibly get edited by the yeah. time they graduate. So That's there's the thing. big wave and then the mini and then the, the smaller wave. Right. Um, some people call these the windows, big window, small window, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so here's so here's a thing. How do you pick? Right? right. If you're a law review staff, how do you pick? Right. Uh, if you're a law professor, you definitely want it to get published somewhere rather than nowhere. Mm-hmm. You would prefer all of the things being equal that it be published in a journal that you know your colleagues view as more prestigious. Right. Yeah. Um, now, the strength of your preference, the, the strength of your second preference about the prestige of the place it gets published, right? Some people might have a very strong preference for that. Some people might have a, 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 a relatively weak preference for and that. And I have to say, let me inter- interject here, because that used to be, you know, and again, this is before my time, so I don't know exactly how these used to be done, but my sense is that you know, maybe there was a copy of the Harvard Law Review and the Columbia Law Review and uh, in the faculty lounge and sure. a lot of, you know, so so maybe you would actually consume volumes and you would thumb through to see what the latest thing is. Sure. You might not have a copy of the Georgia Law Review or, you know, or, or uh, something which is not Harvard, Yale or Stanford or the Columbia Law Review right. lying around, right? So, right? so maybe getting published in a volume that a lot of people are likely to read and browse and find out about was a thing. But then 
Right. Westlaw and Lexus start to digitize everything. Um, everything is um, available electronically. And increasingly, the decision of a journal to publish your piece has very little to do with how people will access it and everything to do with giving it a tag, right? So right. essentially, Harvard Law Review is now just a tag, which is attached to the piece. Now, yes. there's more to it because they actually edit the article and we can even talk. I don't know that we're going to do it right now as to what kinds of inputs they put into producing the article. So I don't want to gainsay the fact that the students have a role to play in, in shaping the piece as it moves from draft to, to publication. But um, that may be beyond the scope of the discussion. But the purpose of this preference that professors have for publishing in a particular journal, right? Right has to do less with the physical appearance in a particular volume or right. even a concern about like whether people will have access to the thing. Right. And everything to do with the currency of that tag. Right. Yes, the value the, well, of the tag. The, the currency the, the, the value of the tag in a market for prestige. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's it's, it, it's uh, not I thought if I talked enough you'd say it right. <laughs> you'd you'd basically <laughs> summarize it. Yeah, exactly. Because if it is in the, you know, upper north back of Beyond Law Review. Mm-hmm. It will appear in Westlaw and Lexis, and therefore it will – someone – another scholar doing a text-based search for a particular concept to find a discussion of something will find it. Right. A practitioner who's looking for a good treatment of that issue or question will find it. Right. Without respect to which law review it appears in. And, of course, the ideas are the ideas. The person who reads them will get to read them, and so they'll know them, and they can cite them, and other people can find them, and et cetera. Right? And all of that is true without regard to – whether it's in the Columbia Law Review or the Upper North Back of Beyond Law Review. It makes no difference. However, <laughs> law professors aren't just writing things. They're in, they are functioning in lots of circles, right? And some of those circles are, I would like to receive tenure. And one of those considerations is, if you're working at a large university, for example, some of the people who interact with your tenure file will not be law professors. Mm-hmm. And so you might wonder whether or not when they are reading a file, whether it would make a difference to them if as their eyes are glancing over these pages of your CV, right? And they're seeing brand names they recognize. Yeah. Harvard, Columbia, Stanford, et cetera. Or they're seeing a bunch of names they don't recognize. Right. Right. What might the marginal effect on them be? You don't know. And so that's just one man of view. We could go on for hours with the different about the man- demand side, yeah, about the demand side of this equation. Correct. Right? I yeah. am not ignorant of those things. I'm quite aware of those things. <laughs> mm-hmm. And people have lots of opinions about them. And that's great. But but here's what it has led to that preference for all other things being equal. I'd rather publish in a in a law review associated with a more prestigious school, and that makes it a more prestigious review, right? To the degree that a person has that preference, and I think actually all law professors have it to at least a weak degree. I don't I don't know anyone who has, for example, the opposite preference. All other things being equal, I would rather publish this in a less uh, in a in a law review published at a less prestigious school. Uh, uh, I, I, I okay, we're not going to go into you it. Can, you, uh, so we can argue about that, but, yeah. but let me proceed from that premise, that this is a widely shared preference. Definitely. E- even definitely. if it's a very weak one for lots of individual law professors. Definitely. So here, here's the thing. Those, those submission platform mechanisms that allow you to send to lots of people uh, have also been adapted to allow you to do uh, something that's been going on since the late 80s at least. And I say at least because the, the earliest discussions in law reviews that I can find of this phenomenon that I'm about to describe is from the late 80s. The, the practice is this. 
you take the fact that you have an offer from Law Review X and you tell the other Law Reviews that are still considering the piece, hey, Law Review X just accepted the piece and they've given me until day Y to say yes or no. Please expedite your review or please consider or I hope you'll take a look or whatever, however it's said, right? Uh, these Larvie platforms, uh, Expresso, Scholastica, have actually made all of this automated as well. Mm -hmm. right? So you can go and say, I want to make an expedite request, and you can type in your little sentence, and what review accepted it, what's your deadline, and you can go, poop, and that sends an email to all the Larvie editors at all the reviews where it's still pending. Right? Um, at a certain point, I kind of realized that this is all a complete and utter disgrace. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> uh, well, let, let's just say what's bef funny before is, you get there, before you get there. So, so why um, uh, expedited review is one of the ways that in this market where law reviews are swamped with pieces, and so the main resource is attention. Yep. And so, what you're looking to try to do is to get your piece read. Like, that's the main thing, is to get yeah, it read. Because if they haven't read it, they can't decide they, whether to publish it or Exactly, exactly. So it's a condition preceding to its being, to its receiving an offer of publication. So you want it read, and you want it read maybe ideally with, with the knowledge that another law review, which this law review is likely to see as pretty good, has already accepted it and passed on it, right? So it has that additional information. But the point is to get it read, and that leads to all kinds of things, like knowing professors at other schools and asking them to walk the piece down to the law review, which has gone on, I think, for a long time. Sure, in, I'm sure it e has. Even in the pre-digital age, I think. And and pulling other strings to just to try to get the journal editors to read right. your piece because, they, as you said, as you pointed out earlier, they can't read them all. Right. The fact that a, that a group of law review staff editors has read the piece and has concluded that it is publication worthy is actually probative of its being publication worthy. Maybe it's not. It's not even that it's an irrelevant fact. I think it is a relevant fact. Um, it, 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 and indeed, <laughs> it is disgraceful in exact proportion to its relevance. Well, it uh, may, because its relevance uh, is proof that yeah, that yeah. the labor of the people who have read it and have accepted it. Um, is There's, being arrogated in an improper way. I, I, this look, is my analysis. We'll get, we'll get to this, but but um, in the information conveyed by acceptances or or or, or declinings, declinations, declinings, rejections. Yeah, rejections. That's a fine word. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's some signal. There's some noise. Of course, right? like anything else. And it's not obvious to me that the signal outweighs the noise. The noise might be systematic. Like so, so in that case, it's not noise. It's like good signal to bad signal ratio. Okay, and and, and this relates to the earlier thing that, that we raised, right? That law reviews ask for you to attach a CV, and in some studies of law reviews, uh, a lot of them indicate that that is a dominant consideration in the decision to publish. Yes, there is a uh, a an effect, a letterhead effect that relates to your current institution. Um, it can relate to where you've published things before. Right. Uh, so this is another, you know, the uh, a rich get richer phenomenon. They rely um, on it heavily. And and yeah. if that's the case, then then that's not noise It's because it's not random. If it were just random noise, then you would think the signals, you know, even if they were weak, would be useful. And right. so your, your comment about probativeness would but be. The, but it, but pro, uh, uh, look, 
uh, evidence can be relevant even if it's extremely weak evidence that's relevant. You, uh, you're right, so, that, and, but that's that's assuming that you're in a in a background of otherwise kind of random randomness. Uh, I don't think. But it, if you were in a background of systematic, it um, it be, even even in the context of a systematic skew, right? Um, the fact is, the expedite request is the assertion that not that another school noticed I am at school X by reading my CV. It is an assertion that they read the individual piece and made an offer of publication. Now, maybe they didn't read it particularly carefully. Um, maybe they only read it because it was in the pile of things for the people with the right CV. But but there's probably other things in that pile yeah. that haven't been read and yet I, or I'm that haven't received I'm not claiming yet. anything about how this actually happens because I, I would want to look at more of those studies. And, and I know, you know, from my interactions with people on law reviews, and my own experience in law review, the, there are many, many boards who very conscientiously apply their own judgments and ask for faculty help and arriving at these judgments, and they do everything they can to. It's not just a lot, but but there's also a lot of evidence. There's a lot of CV looking, right? And yep. and so the point is that if, or at least my point is that if there is that background signal, I'm not sure about. But anyway, but go. Ahead, let's get to your point. Go ahead. You look frustrated. I'm well. I'm frustrated because we've been talking for an hour, and I find this enormously tedious. And I wrote the piece. Um, so why don't you say what my? Why don't you do something? I've been talking a lot. <laughs> Just tell me what your thesis is. Uh, why don't you tell me what it is? <laughs> so you think expedited re- review is immoral because, it, from a Kantian perspective, it treats the students as means rather than ends, and it doesn't take adequate account of their time, and it doesn't take adequate account of our special responsibility to our students and, and uses them to advance our own careers without thinking about theirs. Yeah. And it's the last point that I think is actually the most important point. As I, as I, as I thought about it carefully and, and, and wrote it, it was, it had really been gnawing at me um, because this expedited review thing um, is very widespread uh, among law faculty. Lots of them do it. Um, they get lots of encouragement to do it. You know, you'll need a shower afterward. But but I would encourage everyone to go read discussions of the expedite phenomenon in the law review literature itself. And there's lots of discussion about how to do it effectively and successfully. Blogs are full of this stuff now. It's not just in law review literature. You search on law blogs, you'll get tons of stuff about this expedite process. Um, and um, I think it is a soul-annihilating careerism uh, that is <laughs> dreadful uh, and harmful to everyone it touches. How do you respond to, the, I think, the, the, the maybe biggest critique here of, of your position? And that's that everybody knows what the game is. So every, th- this is a selection game where we are matching basically pieces with, uh, so, so there are preferences on the demand side and preferences on the supply side. Yep. And I've kind of reversed demand and, and supply more, for what, and the way we more talked pieces, about it earlier. There are more pieces circulating at any given time than there are slots at that moment, right? I think if you expand the window of time, mm-hmm. I actually do think there are enough slots for the pieces. So so ultimately what we're talking about isn't whether it will get published, but where it will get published. Right. And the where is that prestige question, right? Right, Because not all of them can show up in the Harvard Law Review. But this is a game where the students know what the game is. And so with their resources, they have, uh, they have a desirable commodity uh, basically a, an ability to place a tag on a piece, right? And to work with it, ultimately. Yeah. You would think hopefully that has some educational value. Yeah. Um, 
But the thing that they are selling that professors really want is not so much that as it is the tag. And they are able to um, convince you to publish with them either by their own prestige, that's one resource they have, but also the time limitations that they can put, right? So they can make you decide within a week or two weeks. If they are, if they don't have enough prestige value, then they don't really have the leverage um, if, if the piece is good and is likely to be accepted somewhere else to make that window too short. Because they're not repeat players, they don't have, many of them don't worry so much about, you know, uh, reputations with authors in the long term, or at least True. that's a, a secondary consideration that some of them may be thinking about, but maybe many are not. Yeah. And, and so you do find stories of law reviews giving people an hour to decide whether to publish. But but if you're a lower ranked law review, you don't really have the leverage to do that. Right. So, so yeah, that is the critique of my thought. The gravamen of my story, the, the core of my story is that the 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 reason it is immoral and i believe it is the reason it is immoral uh to make uh expedited review requests is because you're treating the students in the journal that's just accepted you um as a means to an end you mentioned this as sort of a kantian idea mm-hmm. right but it's not only that it, it's that you do that in a context where Law faculty have a relationship to law journals as educators and as um, the people who created the law review system itself, right? We are the ones who create and maintain it, right? We create and maintain it for educational purposes, right? That's, That's ostensibly why it exists, is not merely to be places where we can satisfy career needs we have. Um, because we could do that with journals published not by students, as at virtually every other field does, right? Uh, so the fact that it persists as, a, as an institution that involves the students in the enterprise must be because we think there is some educationally appropriate purpose and benefit for the students. And in that context, to flip the bit and turn it into this sort of thing where what matters is these these career-oriented things for the professor, right? Um, Without respect to its effect on the students as an educational matter, it seems to me to make a terrible category mistake because we've set it up as this educational thing uh, in a context where we owe them a special duty as the educators in this context to handle it as an educational question. I think that system, that the critique of this morality of the system, for me, is the more compelling critique. The the critique of the individual act of requesting expedited review, given the system, I think is weaker. Unless you take this, like, you know, universalizing, you know, categorical imperative view that, like, the system exists because people make those choices. Well, I agree with you that it is weaker. I agree. Um... I just wouldn't say there's anything immoral about an individual uh, requesting expedited review in the current system. I think that there is a shared moral obligation to our students to reconsider whether the system as a whole, you know, has or is, is using our students as uh, is treating our students as ends in, in themselves and, and consistent with our pedagogical mission. And hopefully, you know, the idea would be there would be some synergy between the goals, the academic goals of the academy and the pedagogical goals of the right. academy. And, and and I think your critique is those are way out of whack at this point. Yes. But and, but because I'm not a total like 
deontological thinker about this. I don't necessarily think that an individual decision to request expedited review within the current system is immoral because it constitutes that broader system, right? In other words, I would decouple those two things and think, you know, because I I don't think you can actually affect the big system by an individual decision not to expedite in any significant way. So let me take the last thing first, because I I think that's absolutely right, um, that you can't affect system, you can't have a systemic effect by individually deciding, as I have done, um, not to request expedited review again, ever, uh, which I will never do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I don't expect that that individual decision on my part, yeah, will have any systemic consequence at all. But the question whether or not it is helpful or accurate to think of the the moral status of the decision, whether to make an expedited review request, um, I think that's, it. it is a neat thing and it's a quandary, right? Um, even if you accept, because what you've said is, I, I can accept that there's um, a critique to make of the system, the system level morality, um, but not of the individual choice that someone's making about expedited review. Given the system. Given the current phenomena on the ground, right? It, it, given the current way people are actually right. acting on the ground, um, it doesn't, it's not sensible to talk about the individual professor's choice right. as a moral choice or not. That, that's if the system is not you know, completely evil. Like you can imagine a completely evil system where individual participation is kind of complicity in that evil architecture. Cause you know, but right, and, and maybe I take a slightly different view on the, like, I think the current system is ridiculous for all kinds of reasons that we can talk about now or another time. Uh, but do I think it's like, you know, it's certainly not Nazi level evil, right? No, of course it, not. Right. And I know you're not saying that, right? But, but that's the kind of thing like, you can imagine evil systems where individual participation in those systems would be, would, would be immoral um, because of the immorality of the system. And I'm, I'm not saying that can never happen. I'm just suggesting in this particular circumstance, even if the overall system is immoral because of the way it trades off academic and pedagogical goals. And in particular, I think another critique is the way that it trades off individual careerist goals for academic goals. Mm-hmm. I agree with you that there are there are situations of sufficiently uh, horrific that um, <laughs> that the that the individual ought to think about the choices they're making in that context in in moral terms, mm-hmm. uh, even if they can't affect it at a systemic level. Right. Um, I agree with that. Um, obviously this is one of those instances where that I think that way, I don't expect anyone else truly, uh, including my future self or my past self <laughs> to agree with that. You know, my past self didn't agree with it because I've engaged in this conduct before, mm-hmm. which I say in the, in the little five page write up I did. So clearly I d- didn't think it was bad. I did it, but I think it's, I now think it's bad and I think it makes sense to think of it in those terms. Do you think it's transactionally bad on a, on a transaction basis? So on an individual basis, when you, when a, when a law review, let's so suppose number 75 rank law review, whatever, uh, accepts your piece, gives you a two week window and has actually put out more acceptances than it has spaces to publish, right? Because it knows that these, some of them are going to be expedited away. And in fact, number 75 law review is a beneficiary of the system because it itself knows what to read because of acceptances by say ranked hundred to 150 ranked law reviews. But it, it puts out say 20 acceptances. It has like 12 slots and 
it can do that because it knows that some of them will be expedited away. Maybe even very many, you know, uh, it may be that almost all, and, and it starts to be a problem. But is, does that change? Is, you know, so what's your question? Is the transaction of expediting from an offer from that law review, given its own behavior, an immoral action, even though the law review ex- knows and expects that you will seek publication from higher think, ranked journals? I, th- I think it is in as much as it fundamentally mistakes the scenario as this sort of arm's length market transactions in a trading pit, which it isn't. The law review is an educational thing happening Mm -hmm. in an education environment um, conducted ultimately uh, by educators. True. And so, so to the degree that, uh, that that is what's actually happening um, then yes, it's that immoral. seems like a sense that seems like a systemic critique rather than a critique of well, the individual it, transaction. It, and I Be, don't because th- if everybody did what you said, the law review would would have too many, you know, on a one off basis. Then the law review would have oh, too many. A, that was an important caveat, right? Because if everyone did what I said, all, many things would be different, not just that those right. things. And so, so yes, it's a it. So so part of what I'm doing is I'm pushing back on the notion that you can detach your analysis of the current event from its system and context. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you you can usefully separate it in some respects and. And separating it occludes other things. And conveniently for everybody involved, what it occludes here is its immorality, right? So when you decontextualize it, um, you you obscure the way that it is wrong. Yeah, but I don't know that it makes it any harder for me. Suppose I were seeking expedited review on something. I don't know that it makes it uh, any harder for me to see the the problems with the current system. And I don't know that I want to go to morality. I, I, I Maybe I, I'm sympathetic to the claims that it makes uh, – that that it uses our students in non-pedagogical ways. I I think that's a real problem. I also have concerns about the nature of the motivations that it encourages professors to have. And I'm a big believer in uh, the fact that the quality of our work is determined by motivation and and the quality of our lives is determined by the set of our motivations. And the but, lessons, but that said – And the lesson – you know, not just what it doesn't it, – it, 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 both, it both misses an opportunity to teach students some beneficial things. And it teaches them some terrible things mm-hmm. about careerism right? and about sacrificing other people's um, work and benefit to your own interests, uh, ruthlessly so, in fact, which is how students talk about it. Um, if, you, yeah. if you ask, and this is another thing you'll find in the literature, is you'll see students talking about what it's like to work on law reviews that experience this as a negative net outflow, right, right? as opposed to a beneficial inflow. right. Um, and and they do not talk about it in particularly um, yeah, I, affirming right. ways. But right? what I'm saying is, I, I don't think that if I were making you know if I were making an expedite decision right now about whether to expedite, like doing that doesn't doesn't occlude for me the broader view of the need for systemic reform, right? I you know that that I, I get that like if people just keep doing this on an individual basis, it kind of papers over the problems systemically, and we're less likely to engage with the systemic problem. But I'm not sure it does that for me. But, okay. I, but what you just said, though, is interesting that, um, you know, to the extent that professors are generally drawn from schools which are not net outflows, but are net inflows. You know, these are yeah. m- many professors worked on journals that experience the upside of Correct. expedited review. Yep. Uh, it, that's problematic, right? It is a fact that most law professors uh, come from a, a, a narrow subset of schools. 
and it is the higher ranked schools. It is also a fact that those schools have more prestigious law reviews, and therefore it's, although it's not a fact I can verify, um, it's an intuitively appealing uh, hypothesis <laughs> that mm-hmm. um, that when those many law professors were on the staffs of those prestigious law reviews, they experienced this at least in the last 30 years, because this has been going on for 30 years and more. Um, they were the ones getting the expedite requests. Yeah. And therefore, they were the ones experiencing the benefit of the work that was irrigated from the lower tier law reviews and ported over and handed to the upper tier law reviews, which is just read this subset of things because these are the ones that other people have already filtered for you. So you've got this wonderful Duke Law Review piece, for example, of a Duke Law Review editor talking about, you know, giving tips. And one of the tips is literally said in this piece, right? You know, let those other law reviews do your work for you. What do so you, that's one of the things we've taught them. Yeah. Would you, would you get rid of student law reviews? So I'm, tr- I'm trying to game out what would happen in a system where without expedite, where you sent an article and you out to multiple publications, and I assume that the that, that the behavior you would want to see model is to accept the first offer of publication that you receive. Yeah, I think that's a. I think well, I think that's a. Um, it's this is such a. You know, this is the non tedious part where you can talk about the variations and the different things, and you know, so someone might say. Oh, so Miller, so you, you must think it's immoral to submit to more than one journal at a time. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I don't actually, um, because I think that that doesn't involve taking the work of, of, of a tier of journals and systematically sacrificing it for the benefit of other journals. Right. It just imposes the risk of wasted work. Because there's the risk that a journal could be have read through something and not be quite finished with it, but then they off uh, not, they lose out because True. they're not fast enough. Um, and so I think it's it's not immoral, but it is considerate and prudent to submit to a small number of journals, more than one. That's a norm in our field. That's okay. Yeah. Right. Um, but I think you'd want it to be a small number. Um, and do, would I say you know you'd have to take the first offer you got? No. I I think any if you wanted to wait and see if in the time they gave you any other journal to whom you had submitted it, but it, gave, but that's just expedited review. No, it's not because you're not communicating anything to those other journals, right? You're saying here's the I've I've submitted to these five or ten journals, mm-hmm. and um I'm going to entertain the offers that I receive within the time that I have to consider them. Right. So you'd use an auction mechanism, right? I mean, no, because again, that's that would imply that you're conveying information to the other. I get it. I get it. What's happening? And I'm saying the exact opposite of right. Right. Which is that you're you you submitted it to. Yeah, it's just that if if everybody did this though, so I'm trying to you know let's quantize this thing again, right? If everybody did this and everybody submitted to a small number of journals, then the chances that that when you accepted your offer a publication, other journals were in the process of reading your work would be much higher than they are now, right? So if, if you accept your first offer of publication, higher than they are now. right? So, so right now, if you submit to a hundred journals and they have 3000 submissions, the chance that when you accept your offer that another journal is, has put a lot of work into it and is about to make an offer is actually pretty small, right? Yeah. Because in the current system, they, they, uh, a certain number of them are just going to wait for expedites. Just going to wait for expedites. And in your system, Journals would have a much smaller pool 
and would be much more likely to be working on a particular on your piece while you are while, you know while you're considering yeah, whether to accept the offer. A smaller number would be more likely to right. be actively engaging with the pieces. That's true. So, and so that risk that you impose of wasted work would be higher in your system than it is now, although not systematic. Because it's yes, not infected with information. And so in in the in the next cycle um a, a a more serious discussion about how many journals it is reasonable for someone to submit to simultaneously i think that's a worthy discussion to have in that context because mm-hmm. it because it's it isn't a large number um and and we're now in the world where a lot of things have changed yeah um, and so you know it's harder to get one's hands around okay what would all that look like and what would be the best way to handle when it? When they still use CVs? Because, I mean, one consequence of your system is that you would expect that quality would be slightly more randomly distributed. But on the other hand, the set of journals to which you apply would depend on your estimation of the likelihood of those journals accepting your piece. Yes. Right? And that may depend on what you think they're evaluating. And if you think they're evaluating CV, it means if you're at the number 70 ranked law school, maybe you send to 70 plus or minus 10 in terms of law reviews. Okay. I, I, I don't know how to think about that. It's just a different system, right? Yep. It's a different system. Is it better? I mean, so in that sense, quality wouldn't be randomly distributed, right? If everybody submitted to every journal and every journal were blind and you just accepted the first offer that you got, right? And journals were randomly reading articles, then clearly quality would be randomly distributed unless you think some journals are better than others at spotting quality. Um, yeah, and I doubt that they, uh, that I doubt that they are. Um, and what would we design if we wanted to design a system and we wanted to use all these uh, computer-based tools um, to do it, and design a system that was the the that was the most fair and even-handed in terms of the work that people put into it, um, helping everything find a place to be published because that's probably the case that there is a place mm-hmm. for everything to be published. Yeah, I think it I think it might involve things like you know there is a there is a pool of manuscripts there are a pool of spots and a lot of you uh can go in and pick one of the things from the pool and when that law review has picked it to look at no other law review can be considering it you could imagine variations on that you could imagine using the medical match model you know what I would do okay I don't, are you going to tell me? I am going to tell you. I mean, I think, this is just thinking based on what you have said. I think I would uh, let student law reviews be places for student work and student engagement with scholarship. And so they would do things like maybe interview professors about things that they've written or publish their own works or publish their own reactions to things that professors have done or to cases. It would be a focused on, it would be focused on student engagement with scholarship for faculty scholarship. SSRN with endorsements and maybe comments. Um, I, I just yeah, don't... Works, that works for me. I have no problem with that. So basically get rid of the idea that students are picking faculty publications and and seriously spending a lot of their time blue booking and editing, which is a different show altogether. Right. But No, I, and, I, and I'm, I'm completely amenable to that um, because I think it avoids some of the pathologies of the peer review system and it's tipping over into orthodoxies, mm-hmm. which it tends to do. Right. And everything is guaranteed a home in that context, right? Right. And that home is SSRN. Yeah. Um, which is, it, which is what you claim the system already is. Like everything already gets a home. And if you have commenting utilities and other ways that people can express views on that piece to help 
people in the field assess its contribution to the field. I right. think that's great. Because you need some gatekeeping. You need some editorial function. But why should it be performed by this weird market of, of 2L law students? I agree. And, and the, thing that's, uh, the thing that's great about what you've just suggested is it returns the focus to where it should be, which is this is ostensibly part of their educational experiences and is designed with educational goals in mind. Right. Because we say that now, but the way we act is that it's this forum for some kind of unfortunate careerist impulses and behaviors that are right. that are dysfunctional, um, and that not only don't ed- serve to educate the students about good things, but actually serve to educate them about bad things. Yeah, that I can agree with. I mean, it, like I said, it's a systemic critique that I'm much more amenable to than the uh, moral critique on a transactional basis. Although I, I can appreciate your argument. I think that... The participating... Yeah. I mean, it's your complicity argument, right? Participate. There is a level at which uh, participating in a system that you can readily understand to be at the level of a system morally deficient, right? Is a, Participating in it willingly is a form of moral deficiency. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm not so sure for the reasons that we gave earlier, right? It has to do with the attitudes of the participants in that system, right? And, and I want all those attitudes to be different, including of the students. But given, as, as fixed, the attitudes of students on existing law reviews and the way that they do their business basically within that system, I, I have a hard time saying there's anything immoral about an individual faculty member taking the expedite period that the student offers and is willing to offer and, and using it. Uh, that said, I do see the systemic immorality that arises I, I from that. I appreciate that. This is one reason why the, the little thing starts with this imagined, this little thought experiment about what would you be willing to say in your cover letter Yeah, uh, about that. Uh, but the, and, I, and I think it throws into relief the, the way in which we sort of, we can say, well, you know, it's a matching market. Everyone knows it's a market. The students are proceeding on that basis, blah, 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 blah. And, I, and if, to the degree that that's true, I wonder why people aren't more upfront about that. Yeah, I, I agree with you to some extent because, you know, I, I'm so all about like, wonder. You, you know, from our conversations, I'm all about peeling back the BS and, and, and for people being honest about things. And I, I'm all for that generally. But this would be far from the only place where people present themselves without complete candor, but in, but in, a, but in a way where people are, even though they don't like express all of their desires like everybody knows it and so it's right. not a huge like when you write a brief for a judge right you're trying to make a persuasive argument you're not completely candid about all your motivations and writing right. that brief but everybody right. knows you're trying to win the case and and, and nor do you like, include you don't, the, uh, the back page of the brief is not a copy of the bill you sent the client for writing right. the brief i mean obviously, and you don't say at the right? beginning right your honor i'm willing to make any and all arguments within yes. my <laughs> ethical limits that yeah. might possibly persuade right. you Consistent even though with i don't believe being them. a paid yeah. advocate exactly I'm to, right of course not and and um, but there are plenty it, but, of other instances where but, we just but don't. But it is interesting, nevertheless, that um, – And with family members, we don't list with them, you know, here are all of the sacrifices I'm willing to make for you and here are the ones that I'm not willing no, to make. Yeah, like there's just agreed. no reason to do that. We all get like that we, this is life and things happen and agreed. and people act for reasons and, you know, and yep. so I don't see the cover letter as, as any different than that. I don't see it as subterfuge. I, I think it uh, includes – nor, nor did I ever indicate that it was subterfuge. Um, but, but, but I do think it's an interesting thought experiment and maybe nothing more than that to look at the, the, the different things you might say in that letter about this topic and, and which ones would you be comfortable saying? Which ones wouldn't you be comfortable saying and why? And of course, yeah. maybe the reason that you're not comfortable is the, is 
the trivial reason for being uncomfortable that you're raising now, which is that this is just part of normal social life. We're not, you know, we're not looping back to Ted Cruz, right? We're not all relentlessly annoying people all the time. Oh my gosh. um, Yeah. And that's not particularly illuminating. Um, but but maybe it, it is illuminating if the if you think about the reason that your discomfort at saying it is because you realize ooh you know being that graphic about it um, actually m- m- that that might actually take some a, people a call by for surprise. reflectiveness on the fact that this is a market of this kind and that you're participating in it I think is that's fine I think that's good it doesn't but it's a little bit different than um, there was this great you know piece by Mark Twain I think it's called the War Prayer Have you? read this before? I don't think so. Uh, and there was a go- really good video that someone did portraying it. And, and basically it's, you know, it shows someone making a, a prayer to protect the troops as they march off to battle somewhere, you know, and it, it's a generic kind of war thing where you're, yeah. you know, and, 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 and then there's this, uh, you know, an old man who gets up that nobody knows where he came from, who says, you know, there's a hidden prayer that goes, that is necessarily attached to this prayer. Right. And he starts to give it like, all the things that that implies, which is that you slay your enemies, you make them, you create orphans, all these. It's a terrific, terrific piece and, and a great video. And that's a sense in which you didn't even recognize the system that you were actually in, right? In, in making this prayer while you're also praying basically to smite your enemies, right? You, there's, a, there's a morality that you totally don't get. And I don't see cover letters for as exactly the same way, right? I think everybody kind of knows the game. It doesn't, in other words, it's not like consciousness uh, submerging to write a cover letter about your piece. No, and you're 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 over literalizing. Um, that's that. Uh, I was I I offered it as a thought experiment because I think it helps people think about this in a more interesting way, yeah. in just the yeah. way that that warrior thing that you described does. Um, and and. And I was just pointing out that it's not an exact parallel, but I do appreciate the fact of the thought experiment raises consciousness. It says, be mindful about what you're really doing. And I do like that aspect of it. And it is systematic. Mm-hmm. Um, this, you know, the, the, the prestige lineup in the U.S. news, a thing we've talked about before, right? U.S. news rankings, that lineup and you and sort of the, there are there are systematic winners and systematic repeat losers in this formula Mm -hmm. and i don't know why i care about this at some level because it isn't all that important actually in the scheme of things and it's not like you know this is causing a child to starve or something like that because because it is no but it's a system Um, in which you are a participant but yeah and you're trying to leave the world better than um, you found it and and i and i and when i see the the way that the electronic platforms are designed to make this work you know, better and harder and faster and, right. you know, to re- and, and I, and it, and I find it to be a noxious mm-hmm. practice. Um, and for, for reasons I tried to articulate, um, and I'll just say the piece is beautifully written. Oh, thank you. I'm, yeah. Um, and I know that, and I know that there are people who are submitting to journals. They're submitting strictly for the purpose of getting the offer in order to and that's a different it, right? thing if, if you're this submitting ha- somewhere where you don't intend ever to publish even if you but, get the but, offer but of that's, course a, you that's know, a, you, but that's inevitable that that would happen and you know it's a, happening and no. it's happening in abundance i don't think that's the case i mean i think you could submit to 70 Wait, or 80 you, journals you, d- you don't think it's i've never submitted to a journal i wouldn't accept uh, and i think that's great <laughs> uh and maybe this is a testament to how little i think of of some uh people in the legal academy, not individuals that I'm thinking of by name right now, mm-hmm. but simply of law professors as a class, right? And as a group, um, that, that I know 
there are people who are submitting to tens of law reviews every year as they write their pieces and send them out for publication every year. And And the sole reason they are submitting to those law reviews is because given how cheap it is to do so, because it's about clicking a button. Mm-hmm. Um, they're doing it s- strictly in the hope that this will be the the match that lights the fire. Well, that's it, and that yeah, they can take yeah. it and expedite it, and then they can expedite it again yeah, and, and that's expedite fine. it that, again. Just break it, that's a different critique. I mean, it is a critique of a of a kind of expedite it, and a kind of submission. It is not a critique of expediting in general. In other words, one could one could have a view that says, "I'm going to submit to these forty journals." But I will try to publish it my most preferred journal through the Expedite system, but I will publish it the best journal according to that system that gives me an offer of publication. And so I've not submitted to a single journal that I'm using solely for the purpose of Expedite. That's perfectly plausible. It is. It is plausible and it's commendable. And I think it's common. Um, It is commendable that, that people are mindfully submitting only to those journals from whom they would ex- gladly accept an offer of publication. Well, maybe not gladly. I don't. Let's not go too far. <laughs> <laughs> um, from whom they would accept an offer of publication. I think that's good. I think. I think what we should. And and, yeah. and I think partly we're. Do, it's it's you know. I, I'm I'm guessing this is a. I'm guessing that when vegans hear people debate the size of a chicken and which one's better to eat, they're not impressed. <laughs> okay. Um, and so, uh, this is a, this is a little unimpressive because the whole thing is about the expedite system. Uh, I, that well, that's what I'm just trying to disaggregate the arguments that I think are better and weaker. I understand that. But you, you know what? At this point, I think we, we should turn it over to our listeners. Totally. For, for feedback. This has been so tedious we'll link and boring. Up, oh my gosh. You keep saying that and that is a disservice to our listeners. You were not showing the adequate excitement. Although I will say that if we're going to talk about transactional immorality, Maybe unleashing this episode on our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> using, although we're not using them as ends, uh, as means, um, maybe we're not adequately taking account of their ends. Cool. Bye, Joe. Bye.